Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Please welcome this evening's guest moderator, senior film and media reporter from Variety Magazine, Brent Lang. Thanks so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure to be here with Joe Berlinger, who's a Oscar-nominated, Emmy-nominated uh, documentary filmmaker uh, behind Crude, Paradise Lost. Uh, he's, he's on Al Jazeera now with a new show, The System, and of course, tonight's uh, film, which he's here to talk about, where he pulls back the, the cover on Whitey Bulger, one of the most notorious former fugitives. Uh, so without further ado, here's a look at the trailer for Whitey. Whitey's just staring at me and just grinding his teeth. He said, I'll kill you. I'll stab you and then I'll kill you. I'm like, holy Jesus. Whitey killed my sister, took her teeth out. Whitey popped them and killed them. Bald asked if he wanted one on the head and shot him in the head. He murdered people there, he buried people there, and he went to sleep there. There were over 25 years where Bulger ruled the organized crime world. He was never charged with even a misdemeanor. Whitey Bulger faces possible maximum life in prison. This isn't really a typical criminal trial. This is not about getting acquitted. Don't you want to know what really went on? Is the government excited about having Bulger come back? Some people certainly are, but there are others who have many sleepless nights about what James Bulger is going to testify to. I asked the questions, I got the answers for money. I had contacts in the state police, the Boston police, also in the FBI. The very office that is currently prosecuting Whitey Bulger had some kind of corrupt relationship with Whitey Bulger. The federal government is so desperate to try to convince people that he's an informant. Where's the Boston police? Where's the FBI? He realized I get a blank check. I can do anything I want. You want to hang around gangsters and wise guys? This is what happens. There were some things about the file that were so suspicious. Without the FBI, my father would be alive today. You shut up. You're not allowed to talk about it. This prick here is never going to run free. I mean that. Take him out. When he was captured, he came out of the elevator and faced law enforcement with their guns drawn. And they were screaming at him, get down on your knees, get down on your knees. Whitey Bulger's not going to get down on his knees for anybody. Whitey Bulger is a vicious murderer, but he was enabled by the FBI. Will you join me in welcoming Joe to the stage? Hi, everyone. So I'm interested in why uh, you decided that, you know, it's not as if Whitey Bulger uh, lacked publicity yeah. or there weren't a lot of books and films and whatnot about him. Yeah. What What was the angle that sort of interested you? Why did you think you could do something fresh? Yeah. Well, for uh, the longest time, uh, despite my fascination with the case, I never thought I had anything new to add. Um, but I have long been fascinated as a guy who's done a lot of true crime, as somebody 
who has you know looked into institutional corruption and when the justice system runs you know runs off the rails as in Brothers Keeper and the Paradise Lost trilogy it, it, you know the criminal justice system and its failings uh, and true crime uh, has long been a fascination of mine so I've always followed the story and always have been fascinated by it I mean it's an irresistible narrative in many ways you know on top of the Boston's criminal underworld for 25 years uh, not even stopped for a traffic ticket. Uh, finally, you know, under pressure from the Massachusetts State Police, uh, he's indicted, but then the FBI tip, tips him off and he goes on the lam. I mean, it's a great story. Um, the other thing that has fascinated me over the years is I've never seen any contemporary gangster like this so pass into the popular myth-making machine uh, and has been so mythologized and in some cases made into a hero by some. By some. Um, and, you know, a dozen, as you say, a dozen books have been written about him. Uh, Johnny Depp is shooting a movie right now based on one of the books called Black Mass. Uh, you know, the Jack Nicholson character in The Departed was loosely based on Whitey Bulger. So I, I never thought I had anything to, to add because there's so much out there already and Whitey was on the lam, and I figured he was never going to be caught, that the FBI had given him a free pass. But when it was announced that he was actually coming back to Massachusetts to stand trial in what promised to be probably the biggest legal proceeding, you know, in Massachusetts history since, you know, the 1920s Sacco and Vanzetti trial, I, I thought, okay, here is, here is what I can do. Here, now I can add to what's out there by using the trial as a springboard to separate the man from the myth and to understand uh, through the, t the testimony that I hoped would happen, uh, what enabled him? How, did he, how was he allowed to exist? How could he kill so many people and you know, succeed so spectacularly as a criminal uh, you know, while under the gaze of the FBI? And so I thought Finally, there was a way for me to, you know, enter into the fray. And interestingly, the, the trial did not, did not turn out to be that open investigation into the truth that I would have hoped and that I think many longtime trial ob uh, Bulger observers um, would have liked. Um, you know, the trial was very limited in scope. Uh, Bulger was not allowed to present a full defense. Um, questions about you know, his claims of immunity were disallowed. Nobody from the Department of Justice was allowed to be called as a witness for, uh, for Bulger, uh, for his defense. And so that kind of informed the mission of the film, which was to air those questions that were suppressed at the trial. And let me make it very clear. I am no apologist for Whitey Bulger. I am not here to say that Whitey Bulger got a a raw deal, you know, I mean people have been a little confused because you know the Paradise Lost trilogy was clearly films about the wrongfully convicted West Memphis Three and we kept making films until they got out of prison which thank God they did in, in August of 2011. The Bulger you know situation is different. I'm not an advocate for Bulger. He's a brutal killer who deserves to be behind bars but the citizens of Massachusetts and the families of his victims deserve to know the truth about how the FBI and the Department of Justice 
potentially, because I don't know if it's true or not, but potentially played a major role in protecting him and, and, and allowed and in, him to kill. In what ways did you feel like the trial, by being limited in its scope, presented a kind of interrogation of, of the sort that you're, that you're talking about? Pre- uh, you know, prevented uh, people from raising some of the issues that, well, the, that you're the, discussing. Well, the, mo- the most obvious issue is that um, prior to the start of the trial, uh, the judge, Denise Casper, disallowed Bulger's ability to uh, present his immunity claim. As we later learned, he, he, he claimed that the reason the FBI and the Department of Justice never indicted him was that he had a, uh, an arrangement with the then prosecutor, the head prosecutor in Boston, a guy named Jeremiah O'Sullivan. And in the mid-'80s, uh, the Boston office of the FBI and the Department of Justice was uh, very involved in bringing down the Italian mafia. And they brought down the mob, the Italian mob, and uh, O'Sullivan, according to Bulger, was concerned about a retaliatory assassination of, of O'Sullivan, that the mob was going to hit him back. And so because, generally speaking, uh, mob hits in the Boston area were done by the Winter Hill Gang, Whitey could have afforded him some protection. And so they, according to Bulger, made this personal pledge to one another, I'll protect you from getting killed from the mafia, and you, you protect me from getting indicted for any federal crimes. Now, we may think that's a ludicrous claim, but it is, the, it, is his, it is what his defense hinged upon, and he was not allowed to call any witnesses to substantiate that claim. And I think it should have been investigated, and he should have been allowed to present these witnesses, because the, the whole question of whether or not he was an informant goes to the heart of whether or not the FBI, you know, was involved in a criminal conspiracy cover-up of allowing a, a criminal to run free throughout a 25-year reign that resulted in the death of a lot of people. So, I mean, for, for those people who haven't seen the film, why is it so important uh, to, to the FBI under this, this school of thought that, that Bulger be thought of as an informant? Why is that, that well, the, critical? The, the official narrative is that, is that the reason John Connolly and Whitey Bulger were meeting FBI Special Agent John Connolly and, and, and Bulger and others were meeting regularly is that because he was an informant providing information to take down the Italian mafia and that, that there was some additional corruption and payoffs and, and uh, you know, bad behavior that was only limited um, to John Connolly, who's now serving a prison sentence. That's the official story, which takes any of the responsibility away. You know, while he was an informant, uh, 19 people were murdered, some of them innocent people. And so by removing the Department of Justice's and the FBI's institutional responsibility, meaning they had knowledge this activity was going on, it just it deflects any civil liability away from them for wrongful death of family members. Um, And also, uh, according to Bulger's defense, and again, the film shows both sides, and and I'm not here to say that all of this is definitely true, but there are some problems with the official story. Um, And the, um, you know, if if he was, 
an informant. You know, it's bad enough. You know, the the official story is bad enough. When you're an informant for the FBI, you're not supposed to, uh, you know, involve yourself in criminal activity. You know, a certain low-level activity is allowed um, because you can't blow your cover. But to know to to allow people to be murdered is is wrong. And you know, the FBI made a decision uh, that they were going to go after the Italian mafia and use and 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 allow. Uh, the Irish mobsters to run free throughout the city and, and, and the government shouldn't be in the business of picking and choosing who should live and who should die. Uh, one of the very interesting things about your film is that uh, the families of some of the victims find themselves uh, surprisingly aligned with Bulger's defense attorneys. I wonder if you could speak to that. What? What? Yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was. You know, I've covered a lot of trials over the years, and I was fascinated by the idea that the victims' family members were cheering on the defense attorney for Bulger because uh, Jay Carney and uh, Hank Brennan during cross examination. We're asking hard questions that goes to the heart of the actual relationship that Bulger had with the P Department of Justice and um, uh, the FBI, and the the families were thankful that he, you know, Bulger's attorneys were trying to get the truth out because they want to know what happened to their family members, um, and I've never seen anything like that where, you know, the. the the lawyer for the very person who is responsible for the death of their loved ones was actually embraced by these family members who cheered them on and were angry with the prosecution for shutting down certain lines of inquiry that would have led to the airing of uh, the truth about what happened to, to their loved ones. And how were those frustrations uh, chronicled in the local media? How was the trial covered in Boston, uh, were, were these issues that you raise in your film being raised by the Globe, the Herald, local papers and, and radio? And well, whatnot? one of the things that surprised me and disappointed me is that a lot of the local media treated these issues, uh, you know, and, and a lot of these journalists are excellent journalists, have worked on this story for years, you know, have done a lot of fine work, you know, so it's, it's tough for me to come in and criticize as an outsider and someone who's new to the story. But as an outsider and someone who's new to the story, you know, perhaps I was coming at it with a fresh set of eyes. And I think there was an unwillingness by the local media to take seriously any of these troubling claims that he might not have been an informant and that the, the level of responsibility uh, goes way beyond John Connolly and his corrupt supervisor, um, John Morris. Um, you know, the idea that Bulger might have had an immunity deal and the fact that that was disallowed to be argued at trial, I think should have provoked an outrage by the local media. They should have agitated for and, and been huge supporters for the idea that Bulger should be allowed to present whatever kind of defense he wants to, to present. That's a, found, that's a bedrock principle, regardless of who the person is a bedrock principle of our democracy is that you should be allowed to present whatever witnesses you want and to present a full and meaningful defense. And that was not afforded Bulger. Um, and I thought the Boston media was not outraged enough about that. And uh, the allegations that Bulger might not have been an informant 
uh, were dismissed by much of the local media as just a sideshow, you know, tr you know, dismissed out of hand, scoffed at, uh, you know, and yeah, you have to wonder: is it is it because of their journalistic standards have determined that through all their research that there's just not a possibility that Bulger was an informant, or is it because these are the very same reporters who have published books? about the conventional story, which is that he was an informant. They have profited from this narrative. Movies are being made off this narrative. And is there a conflict of interest there? You know, that's for the audience to decide. What, I, I, this is sort of a leading question, because I, I know what their response has been. But what, what has the response been from folks like Kevin Cullen and uh, the, the fellow who, who wrote yeah, uh, Dick Black? Lair. Yeah, Dick Lair. Um, it is a leading question, because you know. <laughs> um, well, you know, the general, we, we had a screening in Boston. Uh, you know, this film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January, and then Sundance selects a, a handful of films, nine films out of the 130 or so films. They, they have this thing called Sundance USA, and they pick one film to go to one city for one screening, and they do that for nine films. My film was selected to screen once in Boston um, for obvious reasons. And so a week after the Sundance Film Festival, we had a big screening at the Coolidge Corner Theater. I invited all the participants in the film uh, to, to attend the screening and a number of them to participate in a panel. I'm not afraid of both sides and having a debate. Uh, you know, so we, on our panel, we had a prosecutor, a defense attorney, Kevin Cullen from The Globe, uh, who you know has written extensively about Bulger being an informant, and Declare from the Globe, formerly of the Globe, who has written extensively about um, Bulger being an informant, and also on the panel were were was the family member uh, Tommy Donahue, the son of victim Michael Donahue, who was executed by Bulger. Um, uh, well, actually, he was a he was an innocent bystander who was ex who was killed while Bulger was executing a, a guy named Brian Halloran. Um, and, and people were very upset that the film would even dare to suggest he was not an informant. And I was labeled as being intellectually dishonest for having raised the possibility and giving it any airtime uh, that Bulger might not have been an, inf an informant. And I found that reaction to be incredibly troubling and quizzical because, first of all, the film is called Whitey, United States of America versus James J. Bulger, because it's about the trial. And in the trial, the defense, you know, raised the issue that Bulger was not an informant. And there was lots of testimony about that. So if you're going to make a film about the trial, you can't leave out the defense's argument. So just on the face of it, it seemed ludicrous uh, to be criticizing me for, for its inclusion in the film. But on a much deeper level, I found it troubling that journalists were, you know, who have profited from one version of events. And in the case of Black Mass, the, which Johnny Depp is now turning into a movie, that was a book written in 2000 that was, you know, based on some, you know, based on the information that was then known, does not include a tremendous amount of information that came out in congressional hearings where Congress censured the Boston office of the FBI and the Department of Justice for not being forthright and for their horrible handling of the top echelon informant program. And there was a number of civil, lit civil trials in which fam victims' family members sued for wrongful death 
unsuccessfully, and a lot of information came out there. So, the you know the guy who you know hasn't updated his book, you know, is criticizing me as being intellectually dishonest, Dick Lair, uh, when in fact a whole bunch of information has come out since then that makes the conventional story even harder to accept. And again, he might have been an informant. The truth might be somewhere in the middle that he didn't think he was an informant, but there was a casual relationship. But there are troubling questions that remain that need to be answered. Yeah, I mean, you, earlier you were talking about the fact that, that you worked on the Paradise Lost trilogy. You have that legacy. Did you worry that, that your biography would would in any way kind of inform the reception of the film, that it would be seen as in some way exonerating Bulger or that, uh, that you would be you know, giving, giving too much credence to, to this man? Yeah, you know, a lot of people have come into this film knowing that I made a series of films with Bruce Sanofsky about the West Memphis Three case, where clearly those films were saying, hey, the wrong guy, um, the wrong guys are in prison and we need to do something about it. Um, I, I, that's not this at all. I'm not saying the wrong guy is in prison. Bulger deserves to be in prison, deserved to be prosecuted, but the victim's family members and, and anyone who's in, interested in the uh, integrity of our institutions of justice, um, you know, should want to know the truth. So I'm an advocate for the truth. I want to know exactly how Bulger was able to operate for 25 years with impunity, how he was able to extort Lone Shark, uh, you know, kill people, uh, while the FBI looked the other way. And it, it shouldn't be that way. And you were actually... But interesting, you know, you, you know one thing, one thing that, uh, I f you know, the Paradise Lost case to me has another um, kind of resonance, which is when we first went down to make Paradise Lost in 1993, we thought we were making a film about guilty teenagers because that's what the conventional narrative was. That's what the police were saying. That's what all the press was saying. And for years, the press was saying, uh, you know, that local media covering the case was saying the West Memphis Three were guilty. We were the lone voice for a long time. And we were attacked and criticized. And how dare you say that they might not be innocent. You know, that, so when people attack me, uh, you know, for trying to ha present a balanced view of the world, uh, you know, I've been there before. And you were actually able to get Bulger to speak for himself in this film. Uh, there's a clip of it. Maybe we could see it. Hello? Hi, Mr. Belger's on the phone. All right, please put him through. Sure. Thanks for calling. Uh, there are a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. Sure. The first is that you've told me since the very first day I met you that you've never been an informant. That's correct. Does that mean you've never been an informant in your entire life? Never. As a teenager, I took many a beating at the police stations, and I never cracked. As a bank robber, I was captured. I pled guilty to free the girlfriend that I was with, and I got a 20-year prison sentence, first offender. In prison, I was part of an escape plot. The plot fell apart. One of the guys gave my name. I told him, I don't know what you're talking about. I spent months in the hole, naked, and the whole thing. I went through a lot there. And after four months for punishment, they sent me to Alcatraz. 
And that was it. I never, never, never cracked. And the Boston FBI, no way. I met John Connolly, who was a salty guy, Irish Catholic like myself. You know, it's friendship. Jeez, if I ever hear anything, I'll tip you off, uh, give you a heads up. And then I told all right, John. I says, I'll see you. You can let me know. I'd appreciate it. And that's how it got started. This isn't really a typical criminal trial. James Bulger knows that by following the strategy he has directed us to do, he will be found guilty, and he's going to die behind the walls of a prison. But for Jim, it doesn't matter. He's at the end of his life. He doesn't know if he'll live till the end of the trial, never mind till the end of the year. But for him, it's like it's his last opportunity to tell people that he was never an informant, that our federal government is more corrupt in law enforcement than anyone ever imagined, even to this day in this trial. It's corrupt, and he wants people to know it. That man's voice is really amazing. I know. I mean, to people who who know the Bulger story or or have followed it, it's actually quite a coup to have Bulger in the movie because, you know, no one's really heard him speak. He didn't testify at trial. I mean, of course, we have his voice on wiretaps um, from 30 years ago. And also during the trial, he was, uh, when he was at the correctional facility, he had some of his conversations uh, with family members, Ill, uh, Ill, not illicitly, cause, but he, didn't, he wasn't aware he was being recorded. Um, so, you know, his voice has been recorded by law enforcement, but he's never willingly participated in a project, and it took me all summer to convince the attorneys uh, who had rejected everyone else to allow me uh, to hear his voice, because I thought it's, just dramatically, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's just interesting to hear the guy uh, and hear his point of view. Again, you know, I, I, just because Bulger says it doesn't mean it's true. This is not a defense of Whitey Bulger, this movie. Um, and I want viewers to ask themselves, you know, is this, is this a, um, you know, the worst thing you can be in, as a criminal is a rat. You know that's the worst. And when you're, especially when you're Irish, being a rat, a tout, an informant, nothing could be worse. Uh, and you're also not supposed to kill women. And that was another issue at the trial. So, is is all of this just posturing on Whitey Bulger's part? Um, because as he gets to the end of his life, uh, and he's passing into the uh, metaphorical Criminals Hall of Fame? Does he want to have a, a, a clean up his image and make sure people you know, respect his legacy and it's just about that? Could be, that's certainly what Kevin Cullen and the people at the Boston Globe believe. But perhaps he's a guy who lives by his own code and if he's gonna be tried uh, for these crimes, he, uh, you know, he wants uh, the world to know the level of corruption uh, that allowed him to operate. That, that's the central question of the film, and I can't tell you what's true, but I can tell you that there are some troubling details about the informant story that don't quite make sense, you know, and don't quite hold water. I looked at his informant file. You know, it's a 700-page file, and that sounds like, whoa, he had a 700-page informant file. Well, half the pages are cover sheets. 
uh, and much of the information you can find in duplicative sources, other informant files, uh, public information, wiretaps. An informant file is supposed to be filled with unique information that directly leads to a prosecution. And there's none of that in Bulger's file. By comparison, there was a, you know, one of the top echelon informants uh, in New York was a guy named Gregory Scarpa who was, uh, you know, working with the FBI to bring down the Colombo crime family. And uh, his informant file for the same period of time was 55,000 pages full of unique information that led to prosecutions. Scarpa, by the way, while he was a top echelon informant, killed over 50 people under the FBI's watch. And that's why this pro program, even, even if, if Bulger was an informant, there's deep problems with the top echelon informant program. When law enforcement gets into bed with murderers, historically bad things happen, you know? So even, even, even if you want to accept the official story, it's, 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 it's what, morally what compromised. His, uh, protestations about, you know, that he killed those two women. I mean, did you find that to be convincing? Uh, are there questions about that? Um, you know, I have to say, I, it could go either way for me on, on that particular issue. He claims that this was, uh, that those two women were uh, Steve Flemmy's girlfriends, that it was, he, he was a killer and uh, uh, th those, those killings were his responsibility. You know, to me that's, uh, that, that was an interesting question at trial, but not the one that's driving this film. It could go either way. What about the informant? I mean, did you, I, I, your, your film does not reach a conclusion to its credit. Did, did you sort of reach a personal conclusion? Um, I, I lean towards the idea that he might not have been an informant, but, you know, I've just seen too many cases where, you know, you, you, you can't speculate. It's dangerous to speculate. What I would like to know is why is his informant file so flawed? Why are there no fingerprints in his informant file? Why is there no contemporaneous photograph in his informant file, like all other informant files? Why is it so thin? Why is there duplicative information uh, in that file? You know, I'd like to understand why, if the, one of the FBI's basic rules about top echelon informants is that you should never target the head of a gang because that means the FBI is sanctioning the activities of that gang. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of the basic rules. Whitey Bulger is the head of a gang. And so, you know, wh why, why is that protocol broken? I mean, there's just, there's just issue after issue that does not make sense uh, in this case if he was a top echelon informant. Is there any sense that the FBI has instituted reforms that are actually... Uh, substantive uh, in light of the Bulger fiasco? Well, on the one hand, the FBI does, you know, did dismantle the top echelon informant program. Uh, they have put in um, reforms. On the other hand, you know, in last year, uh, the, inf you know, uh, a local informant uh, in, in Boston was overheard um, speaking to his handler after committing some very serious crimes, saying, don't worry, we'll protect you. So, um, you know, you wonder if any lessons have been learned. And, and they did not speak to you for this film? Did they? The FBI? Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> what was their 
Well, the FBI in Boston, uh, you know, and I think they, you know, I, I would have loved to included their viewpoint in the film. And also I want to say, you know, uh, I think most people in law enforcement, I've met a lot of FBI people, a lot of uh, district attorneys, a lot of, uh, you know, di police. Uh, I, I think the vast majority of people in law enforcement are good people who honor the the oath they've taken who take the badge very seriously so you know I, I don't want to make it sound like you know I think everybody you know is 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 you know on the take far from it um, you know the the FBI in Boston I would have loved their point of view but uh, they said that you know nobody currently in office at the FBI office of the uh, Boston office of the FBI was around during this period and couldn't speak to the issues. And so I said, well, what if we speak about today's issues? You know, like the question you just asked, you know, what, what reforms have been put into place to, uh, you know, prevent these kinds of things from happening again? And they, and they just simply declined. And they directed me to the national office. So the national office of the FBI had me fill out a form indicating um, uh, you know, indicating the, the the line of questioning, and interesting on that form, one of the one of the first questions was, "Is this interview about you know?" And I'm paraphrasing because I don't really remember. But if anyone goes to the FBI website and look and 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 f looks for their media form, uh, you know, it says something to the effect of, uh, you know, "Is this interview about bad practices or malfeasance on the part of the FBI?" Which I think a form that anticipates those questions, I think, you know, <laughs> s s says something. Um, uh, so we filled out the, the, the media form as to the kinds of questions we would ask and we you know, weren't trying to pretend uh, we were doing anything other than what we were doing, which was an inquiry into the top echelon informant program uh, you know, and the legacy of the Bulger case. And uh, the response was that uh, they were declining the interview uh, and referred us to their website, which talked about how they have dismantled the top echelon informant program. So you know, they declined. Maybe questions from... Or you want to do that last yeah, clip? Yeah, another clip. Because, you know, here are the U.S. attorneys, you know, vehemently deny that, that, that he was uh, not an informant. It's a preposterous assertion that he was not an FBI informant. Uh, in fact, he used uh, the FBI and they used him. What this is all about, quite frankly, is he doesn't mind being called a murderer. He doesn't mind being called a criminal. Obviously, he doesn't mind being called a drug dealer, but he doesn't want to be called an informant because where he came from in Southie, that's the worst thing you can be. You can be a crook, you can be a murderer, but it's worse to be an informant. That's the way he's brought up in his uh, sick mind. That's what he believes. Uh, open it up to questions from the audience. Hi, thanks so much for being here. I was wondering, for doing this kind of movie where you're expo exposing some much information that could be um, in a negative or reflect negatively to the government or the FBI or the organizations that are involved in this case, how do you feel about coming out with this truth and exposing it? Um. That's a good question. Uh, you know, do I worry about my personal safety or whether my tax returns will be audited, uh, things like that? You know, I just don't worry about those things. You know, I think journalists have a responsibility to, you know, expose the truth. And 
Um, you know, I think this film uh, presents both views. I mean, I think my approach to filmmaking is to raise the questions without definitively saying um, that I know better than anybody else. And, and the film is really demanding an inquiry. So I think that approach, somehow I feel like I, I insulate myself from real problems, but, you know, I just don't worry about it. Although you did... Uh, you were involved in a very lengthy and expensive legal case with Crude. I yeah. mean, it's, it's not as if you haven't had consequences. That's true. You know, I made a movie about the... Um, about. Uh, a, a, I made a film about a lawsuit in which the Amazonian uh, indigenous people of Ecuador were suing Chevron because they claimed that Texaco, which Chevron bought in 2001... But Texaco in the um, uh, late 60s through the early 90s used very antiquated oil drilling practices and polluted the region was the claim of the lawsuit. Um, and so I made a film about that lawsuit. Um, and uh, Chevron, and, and again, it was an, I allowed Chevron to have their say. I presented both sides of the case, and then Chevron sued me not for the film but sued me for access to my footage and I felt I as a documentary filmmaker have a right to maintain my footage just like a reporter you know has a right to maintain his notes and not turn them over uh, so I fought a very expensive legal battle uh, here in Manhattan Federal District Court lost uh, appealed it lost and had to turn over all of my footage to Chevron, which was, you know, devastating, uh, you know, and it was, those are the pitfalls of uh, <laughs> the business. Because, you know, documentary filmmakers make so much money, we can afford these lawsuits. <laughs> it's a very lucrative business making documentaries, let me tell you. Um, I just have a question about the Paradise Lost trilogy. I just wanted to know, um, how do you think that m you making those documentaries ultimately affected the three boys who were convicted? And do you think that making those documentaries changed anything about the system that you were looking at? Uh, the first part of the question was whether or not, um, well, uh, do I think that the making of the documentaries, uh, the Paradise Lost, you know, I made three documentaries over 20 years with Bruce Sanofsky uh, about the West Memphis Three case. And, you know, that was, I definitely think the documentaries, you know, tremendously changed the outcome because the documentaries, you know, the, when the first one came out, it just inspired this worldwide movement, you know, all sorts of people like Johnny Depp and Eddie Vedder and Natalie Maines all kind of, you know, decided that, for whatever reason they were going to get involved in this case and tens of thousands of people around the world decided to fight for relief for the West Memphis Three, you know, three guys who were wrongfully convicted of the murder of three eight-year-olds. Um, and, and it took almost two decades and three films, but ultimately they got out of prison. So I, it definitely um, changed the outcome. Do I think it changed the system? Unfortunately not. You know, I think um, wrongful convictions happen at an alarming rate. Um, I think uh, one of the, I mean, I can, I mean, take this in the right spirit, but I, I can understand, not condone, but I can understand when police or prosecutors think they have the right guy and 
make a mistake and the wrong person is convicted. I mean, that's terrible. There's no excuse for it. But I have less anger about that. What I have tremendous anger f about is that once somebody is convicted, it it's, takes way too long to undo a wrongful conviction. People languish for 20, 30 years um, unless there's documentaries and people agitating for them. And that even with the West Memphis Three, it took 20 years. You know, the prosecutor in that case, you know, and the judge in that case, at every turn, blocked the, you know, and, or slowed down um, post-conviction relief. And that, to me, is what I don't understand, is when evidence starts coming out or when there's a potential to test DNA, you know, a lot of prosecutors will block, routinely block DNA, a DNA testing request. And to me, it's, I just don't get that. I mean, the job of the prosecutor and the, and the, and the justice system should be about the truth, not about winning. And I think too often uh, people get wrapped up in, you know, maintaining the conviction as opposed to ferreting out the truth. So I think, unfortunately, the system is still extremely problematic. In fact, I made a TV show called The System uh, that's airing on Al Jazeera that actually deals with um, all of these issues. It's, uh, so if anyone gets Al Jazeera, it's Sunday at 9 p.m. It's actually the last three episodes are, will be airing. Hopefully they'll repeat it. So there you go. Um, I was actually just wondering if when you made the movie, did you go in with the goal just to shed light or were you hoping for a definitive conclusion? That's a good question. You know, every movie is kind of a journey and you're not really sure what the outcome is going to be. But um, I actually thought the film was going to be much less about the conspiracy to change the narrative potentially um, than the film turned out to be. Um, you know, I thought going into the film I was really just going to tell the story of Whitey Bulger and what I discovered was this whole other potential narrative. Again, I don't know if the narrative that the defense is presenting is true, but there are a lot of troubling questions and I think that was unexpected when I first entered the film. Hi. Uh in a world where there is a, you know, so many opportunities to shed light on truth, uh, what is it? What, what is the criteria by which you decide what story you're going to tell? And if there is a piece of criteria, what is it that draw you, drew you to this particular story and said this story next and not something else? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think. You know, for whatever reason, I'm, I, I, I've made a specialty about <clears throat> the justice system. Um, you know, Brothers Keeper, Paradise Lost, even Crude was a, a, a you know, a, a legal film. Um, I don't know, for whatever reason, I've come to the view that, you know, the thing that makes us American, you know, our most foundation, you know, our most fundamental core value, you know, what this country was founded upon is the idea of our personal, the sanctity of our personal liberty and our right to live our life the way we want to live it. You know, that doesn't mean everyone's should have an equal life. You know, life isn't fair, life isn't equal, but everyone should have an equal opportunity to pursue their, their, their lives. And the criminal justice system, um, you know, has the unique power to take away uh, your personal liberty. And sometimes that's deserved. Most of the time it's deserved, frankly. You know, so I'm not saying, oh, we shouldn't send people to prison. 
but America incarcerates, you know, over 2.3 million people. We're, we have 5% of the world's population, yet 25% of the world's prison population. So we're a country that believes in personal liberty by our foundation, and yet we have a criminal justice system that often takes, you know, takes you away unfairly. So if you're going to be sentenced for, for a crime, it needs to be done fairly and accurately, and there's nothing worse than wrongful convictions, and there's nothing worse than the arrogance of institutions that say, hey, we're going to bring down the Italian mafia and empower the Irish mobsters, and whatever they do on the streets of Boston, we don't care because our national objective is to bring down the mob. Now, that's a good objective. I, I don't dispute that the Italian mafia needed to be brought down, but at what price? At the price where institutionally they allow Irish gangsters to run roughshod over Boston and innocent people should die? No, that's the point where I would say the government is not, shouldn't be in the business of choosing who should live and who should die. And so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm attracted to holding our institutions of justice accountable for what our basic principles of government should be. Thank you. Thank you. Join me in thanking Joe.